That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week we put the spotlight on two different anti-nuclear action hotspots in the United States. Michael Keegan will bring us up to date on nuclear issues around the Great Lakes with special focus on the Davis-Bessey relicensing battle in Ohio. And we catch up with a previous nuclear hot seat interviewee, Dr. Catherine Wind Euler. She's in the middle of the Mama Bears Against Nuclear Actions Against Uranium Mining at the Grand Canyon, and she's joined in the interview by Havasupai Waters, a Native American medicine man. We'll have all of that coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, June 25, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. We're starting out this week at the Hanford site in Washington State, where the news continues to be awful. We shared on Nuclear Hot Seat last week that it appears that the most dangerous material on Earth is out of its tank, out of control, and there's no immediate plan on how to stop the problem. What we're talking about is Cold War-era plutonium-laced liquid waste that has been in a double-sided tank at Hanford and has now leaked not only out of its first tank, but the second, and is heading forward in the ground. A crew working on the leak detection pit pulled a piece of equipment from it and measured a contamination reading of 800,000 disintegrations per minute. That's 800,000. The appropriate safety threshold is zero. As a spokeswoman for Washington State's Ecology Department explained, until last night we thought the leak was contained in the outer shell. Washington Governor Jay Inslee said, This is most disturbing news for Washington. But he assured the public that the elevated reading doesn't pose an immediate public health threat. Slow motion inevitability? Yes. Immediate? There's wiggle room around the word. A June 14 report by the Office of River Protection looked at the issue of whether the waste in AY-102, for our purposes called AY-102, should be pumped into a sturdier double-shell tank. Ya think? But it would take more than a year and a half to get equipment in place that can pump the waste, the report said. The state wants the Energy Department to accelerate removing the waste from the tank. Washington law is clear. Within 24 hours after the detection of a leak, or if the owner-operator demonstrates that that is not possible, at the earliest practicable time, remove as much of the waste as is necessary to prevent further release of dangerous waste into the environment and to allow inspection and repair of the tank system to be performed. The head of Oregon's Nuclear Safety Division, Ken Niles, says this development stands out from the string of recent bad news from Hanford. Quote, it's not an immediate health risk. It's not an immediate environmental risk. Do these guys all have the same thesaurus? But it really does complicate cleanup further. Washington Department of Ecology's John Price said, It seems like the last couple of years we've seen more problems at the Hanford site. I don't know why that is, if it's just a blip in time or things are getting older. Do they give an IQ test before employment, and only hire for nuclear matters those people who flunk it? Moving on. The U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee last night, meaning Monday, June 24th, approved President Obama's nomination to lead the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for the next five years, ending a standoff between the panel's chairwoman and the agency and sending the nomination to the full Senate for a vote. The full committee voted by voice to approve Allison McFarland to a full term as chairwoman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Barbara Boxer had demanded more information related to Southern California Edison's broken San Onofre plant in California before allowing the committee to vote on McFarland. Boxer argued for weeks that McFarland had vowed during her confirmation hearing to provide information about the plant, but then failed to hand over a hefty number of documents. Yeah, but Babs, 
excuse me, Senator Babs, McFarlane is only one of five commissioners and gets outvoted all the time by her pro-nuke cohort. So ease up on her. Right now, she's the best we've got. The NRC recently agreed to provide those outstanding documents. McFarland said after last night's vote, I look forward to continuing my service on the NRC. Nuclear Hot Seat is thinking of sending her an admission form to Masochists Anonymous. Or maybe the lady just likes a good fight. Here's a warning for sushi lovers. It was noted more than a year ago that all 15 bluefin tuna caught in August of 2011 off the coast of Southern California, which was only five months after the meltdowns at Fukushima, all these fish contained reactor byproducts cesium-134 and cesium-137 at significant levels. See, I can use that word, too. The levels were 3% higher than natural background sources. Marine biologist Nicholas Fisher of Stony Brook University in New York State, who is part of the study group, said, We found that absolutely every one of them, these fish, had comparable concentrations of cesium. The bad news is that it's only going to get worse. As Reuters points out, unlike some other compounds, radioactive cesium does not quickly sink to the sea bottom, but remains dispersed in the water column from the surface to the ocean floor. Fish can swim right through it, ingesting it through their gills, by taking in seawater, or by eating organisms that have already taken it in. As CNN notes, neither of the scientists who tested the fish thought they were likely to find cesium at all, and since the fish tested were born about a year before the disaster, this year's fish are going to be really interesting. The report said, There were fish born around the time of the accident, and those are the ones showing up in California right now. Those have been, for the most part, swimming around in those contaminated waters their whole lives. In other words, the 15 fish caught almost two years ago and tested were only exposed to radiation for a short time. But bluefin arriving in California now will have been exposed to the Fukushima radiation for much longer and may be carrying considerably more radioactivity, and if so, may possibly be a public health hazard. And now it's time for the NRC report. Yes, when the NRC is in charge, it's always a good idea to duck. David Lockbaum, the director of the Nuclear Safety Project of the Union of Concerned Scientists, sent us a fascinating interpretation of the NRC's NDEs, non-destructive examinations, which he said was really the issue of the NDE being non-detecting examinations. He sent us slides from a public meeting that the NRC conducted earlier this month that reviewed a number of cases over the past decade where examinations failed to identify existing flaws, which were the very purpose as to why the NDE was being performed. According to Lockbaum, Davis Bessie in Ohio made the list twice. The infamous failure leading to replacement of its damaged reactor vessel head, we'll hear more about this in our first interview today, and the failed detection of cracking in nozzles in its replacement head, or at least postponement of detection until after boric acid was found outside the nozzles. It ain't supposed to be there. Another slide covered failures at North Anna in Virginia in March of 2012. Lockbaum points out that any time a crack is so large that it casts a shadow on adjacent areas, you know you have a problem. We're going to try to link to these slides on Nuclear Hot Seat so that you have a chance to see them for yourselves. Another North Anna failure described two recirculating pipe weld cracks that were apparently overlooked since 1999. Lockbaum said, I don't know what the record is for the longest overlooked nuclear safety problem. I just wish they'd end the competition and give anyone a medal. Another slide reports on misses at Diablo Canyon in Northern California. These happened this year and include a crack that was a mere 16 inches long. Lockbaum said that wins for the longest crack that was overlooked. NRC's conclusion slide states, No inspection procedure can succeed if the inspectors and or the licensees rationalize away detected indications. And the NRC knows exactly what this means. They did not sanction a soul for any of these oversights. So according to Lockbaum, the NRC apparently rationalized away the NDE that failed to detect problems. In other words, when the NRC is in charge, duck!
not quite a duck report, but a fire ignited in one of the rooms at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. This without any presumed terrorist intervention. Authorities issued an alert on Sunday, June 23, after a fire alarm went off activating the room's sprinkler systems. So they didn't need to worry about Sister Megan Rice or her two companions, nor did they get to worry about the mentally unstable, that was their quote, woman, who managed to crash into Oak Ridge so easily last month. They are their own security risk. By the way, if you want to learn how Oak Ridge became Oak Ridge, I strongly recommend the book The Girls of Atomic City by Denise Kiernan. It's a really fascinating read. It goes to explain a lot about how this situation got started, and I will attempt to get her for a future nuclear hot seat interview. San Onofre nuclear power plant may be shut down forever. I love saying those words. But now the battle moves to the decommissioning process. It seems that Southern California Edison is in a position to make more money off a 60-year decommissioning process that charges the ratepayers than by running the nuclear rust bucket in the first place. However, we have an antidote to that, according to Captain D of the DAB safety team here in Southern California that was so active in the San Onofre shutdown. Cap D suggests that the California Public Utility Commission, the CPUC, should be required to put the decommissioning of San Onofre out for public bid instead of just giving the multiple billion-dollar job to FCE. He writes, Californians cannot afford a sole-source bid when so many international companies with nuclear expertise are looking for work. A public bidding process will save California taxpayers huge amounts of money, money which should not end up in SCE shareholders' pockets. This single project has the potential to jumpstart our economy, and we can't allow the CPUC to short-circuit our due process by not putting this job out for bid. Great suggestion. And this good news from Jackie Cabasso, who's the North American coordinator of Mayors for Peace. Yesterday, June 24th, the U.S. Conference of Mayors unanimously adopted the Mayors for Peace resolution calling for U.S. leadership in global abolition of nuclear weapons and redirection of military spending to domestic needs. This took place at their annual meeting in Las Vegas. Don't let what happened in Vegas stay in Vegas. Let's share this one around. Woohoo! Now, let's get those mayors to go on record against the nuclear reactors in their own backyards and then uranium mining, and uranium tailings, and all the rest of this mess. Moving to the international scene, it's bad times for France's nuclear reactors. A fire was reported on June 24th in one of the engine rooms of Bouguet Nuclear Power Plant in France, located near Lyon. Nearly 80 firefighters were called to the power plant to put out the fire after the reactor experienced a full scram shutdown. Also, the nuclear power station of Flamanville in Normandy reported last weekend a steam leak. No reports of radioactive leaks. That doesn't mean there weren't any. It just means there were no reports. Those wild and crazy guys at World Nuclear News report that nuclear power generation suffered its biggest ever one-year fall through 2012 as the bulk of the Japanese nuclear fleet remained offline for a full calendar year, some 7% less energy was produced than in 2011. And the world did not stop spinning! Christmas lights remained on, air conditioners worked, no major blackouts, and they're still not counting all of the solar because they nuked the way it gets metered. (laughs) We can live without nuclear. And truly, we can live without nuclear. Japan and Brazil appear set to resume and speed up talks for an agreement that would pave the way for the export of Japanese nuclear technology to the largest country in South America. How many things are wrong with that sentence? Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff will hold summit talks in Tokyo this Thursday, June 27, and likely agree to promote nuclear energy cooperation, sources said. Japan and Brazil first sat down to discuss a nuclear agreement in February of 2011. But the talks were put on cold because of that little problem on 311, the earthquake, the tsunami, and the start of the still-ongoing Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. 
Brazil, did you not see the writing on the wall? Can't you take a cosmic hint? And oh my God, what might happen next to try and get through to you? Over to Japan, where most of the news this week seems to be about radiation. There has been a rise in the level of radioactive tritium in seawater within the harbor at the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant. In addition, high levels of strontium-90, a toxic radioactive isotope, have been found in groundwater at the nuclear plant. This according to TEPCO. TEPCO came clean and admitted it. At a press conference held on June 24th, TEPCO announced in a press release that tritium leaking into the port has increased between June 10 and June 24th to more than double the amount. This is near the Unit 1 through 4 intakes. These levels are now admitted to having been existing since 2011 and are on the increase again after having had some decrease. An official of the Japanese Nuclear Regulatory Authority said groundwater containing radioactive substances may be seeping into the harbor from the plant site. You think? You got any alternative to that scenario that might blame it, ooh, on aliens? During the news conference on Monday, Masayuki Ono, a TEPCO executive and spokesmodel, this time did not deny the possibility of leakage into the sea, while he said TEPCO is still trying to determine the cause of the spike. Do you really not have a clue? Meanwhile, Alexei Yablokov is taking on the UN. In a recent draft report, the UN Scientific Committee on the Effects on Atomic Radiation, UNESCO, said it expected to see, quote, no noticeable rise in cancer rates, meaning around Fukushima adding that swift evacuation of people living in a 20-kilometer, 12-mile radius of the plant had sharply reduced radiation exposure. But some scientists accuse the UN of using faulty methodology. That's such a polite way of saying BS. Alexei Yablokov, author of Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, says Unscar's claim that there would be no observable increase in cancer rates was absolutely unacceptable. The UN body's calculations, he says, had been made using flawed estimates of average radiation doses among Fukushima residents. The average dose estimates don't reflect the real dose of radiation received by Fukushima residents, he said during a recent visit to Tokyo. How did they estimate the average? It's impossible, because the first day of the accident, the level of radiation was thousands of times higher. How do you calculate how many minutes people spent inside and outside their houses at that time? Or how much air they breathed? It's absolutely ridiculous. Regarding radiation and the health risks at Fukushima, Maggie Gunderson, the founder of Fairwinds Energy Education, said in a recent podcast, We're working with different medical professionals who are talking about how many thyroid cancers have started showing up. After an accident of the magnitude of Fukushima Daiichi, The thyroid readings that they're getting now at two years should have been something around five years. So that must mean that much more radiation came out than anyone suspected or at least reported. And a sad footnote to these stories, the leader, the brave leader, who sprayed water on the Fukushima nuclear plant in the first critical hours and days after the earthquake tsunami and the start of the nuclear disaster on March 11th of 2013. This man has passed away. When asked why he stayed at his post on 311, he said, I must do it. He was one of the workers labeled the Fukushima 50, who stayed behind despite the known dangers that they were facing, and sprayed water to prevent an immediate meltdown at the plant, saving untold numbers of lives. The cause of death The cause of death was lung cancer. He was forty seven years old. This item came from Iori Muchizuki and Fukushima Diary. And here is the nuclear hot seat Num Nuts of the Week. This again from those wild and crazy guys at World Nuclear News. You're gonna have to wait for the punchline on this one. 
Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority, or NRA, has announced the changes that nuclear companies will have to make in their reactors to show that they are prepared for extraordinary external events comparable to the natural disaster on March 11 of 2011. It was announced that these plants need stronger and higher tsunami walls with waterproofing of key buildings, more cautious earthquake analysis that will look further back in time when determining if a fault is active, at least the last 120,000 years, but perhaps as far as 400,000 years in cases of uncertainty. Additional countermeasures are then required for accident situations, mobile power generators, secure sources of makeup water, and methods to inject water. TEPCO struggled to open electrically powered valves that could have depressurized the reactors and helped it inject water early enough to avoid core damage. So, one of the changes is that these valves will be required to be manually operable. Assuming all of the above have failed and the plant is in a core melt situation, operators should have sufficient countermeasures to cool and depressurize the containment, protect its integrity, and keep radioactive materials confined. Filtered vents are specified for all boiling water reactors before restart, while pressurized water reactors will be allowed to restart without these but must install them within five years. Operators also need to have foam or water cannons on hand to help stop airborne releases of radiation spreading beyond the site. Then, should the corium fall to the bottom of the containment, units need a water injection system to cool this. Some new reactor designs feature core catcher for this purpose, but Japanese units would have to retrofit a suitable analog. Hydrogen produced during an accident would have to be managed in order to prevent the reoccurrence of the explosions that did so much to damage the Fukushima units. This will be achieved by hydrogen recombiners that operate without any power supply. Many plant owners have already put in orders for these components. In the next five years, all operators will need a secondary control room and source of power and water away from the reactor buildings in case of potential terrorist attacks. Very thorough. And now here's the punchline Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority said that it could take around six months, months, to process an application, meaning that the first units could potentially come back online before the end of this year. Many plant owners have already put in orders for the components. How long is it going to take to install them? How long is it going to take to make all of these changes, to put them in place, to know that all those safeguards are there and you're still in an earthquake zone? I swear, greed is a mental illness. And if we don't do the right thing about it, it's going to do us all in. And this, thank you, Japan. Is the numbnuts of the week. Let's move on to the interview. Now that San Onofre is still shut down forever, that's my nod to Chevy Chase and the original Saturday Night Live, the lessons learned in this battle have direct application to fights against nuclear reactors around the country and around the world. Here in the U.S., the one most likely to go down next is Ohio's Davis Bessie, which always sounded to me like the names of those two figures in the famous Grant Wood painting. Our first interview today is with Michael Keegan, co chair of Don't Waste Michigan and chair of the Coalition for a Nuclear Free Great Lakes. For the past 30 years, Michael has actively engaged in opposition to nuclear power and nuclear proliferation. He has provided expert testimony on nuclear power in hearings at county, state, provincial, U.S. federal, and Canadian federal levels. Michael has helped stop nuclear waste dumps, nuclear power plants, incinerators, bomb tests, landfills, radioactive shipments on Great Lakes, and other nuclear ills. Thank you, Michael. Currently, he's engaged as a legal intervener in the proposed Fermi 3 license application and the Davis Bessie relicensing. How long have you been involved in the anti nuclear movement and what is your area of focus? Well, just 33 years.、Um, I got involved. I was asked to come to a county commissioner meeting. They were going to approve an evacuation plan. And when I went there,、uh, the lies got deep and they got deeper and deeper, and I just dug in. Uh, my home community is home to the、uh, Fermi 1, Fermi 2, and proposed Fermi 3 reactors.
That's in Monroe, Michigan. So in 1980, uh, I got involved, and I was one of those little brat kids who uh, wanted to know why, and uh, they lied to me, so I just dug in deeper, and the lies keep getting deeper and deeper. So um, I'm tracking them and just bearing witness the best I can. What groups are you currently involved in, and where are you focusing attention? Well, we have a wonderful coalition of four groups that are intervening at Davis Bessey. That's uh, Citizens Environmental Alliance out of southwestern Ontario. Don't Waste Michigan. It's a Michigan-wide coalition. Beyond Nuclear, based in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And the Sierra Club of Ohio. So we have a very strong coalition of, of groups, but it boils down to grassroots. It boils down to people power. And those are the groups intervening. And you could find all four of those groups actually have web pages. What I'm going to do then is list all of these groups with their contact information on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog under episode number 106, which will be up as of Tuesday, June 25th, 2013. Well, I, I'm the chairperson for the Coalition for Nuclear Free Great Lakes. In the wake of Chernobyl, we started to look around the Great Lakes, realizing that it wasn't just enough to fight the reactor in our backyard. 20% of the world's surface fresh water was in jeopardy, and 95% of the, the U.S. Uh, fresh water supply, arguably the most precious resource on the planet. When you say you needed to look beyond just the immediate nuclear reactors, what has been your vision? What has been the coordination? Well, we're working together. Uh, I am from Monroe, Michigan, and, and we have a reactor here. And around the basin and around the U.S. and the world, there are, there are local opposition groups. And realizing that we've got a whole lot in common here, and this is not just one reactor. Uh, for instance, in the Great Lakes proper, in the watershed, there's like 37 reactors. 37? Um, 37. And there's another 23 just outside the basin that would carry over in the airshed, the windshed, would carry over the basin. So if any one of these 60 reactors, you're potentially looking at losing 20% of the world's surface fresh water. And 90% of what is available to the United States, which is horrific. Yes. We look at Fukushima and see the disaster there. Well, much of it got washed out to sea. That would not occur. It, it would be stuck in the Great Lakes. So, I mean, it, it's it's really society changing. I mean, it would be a, it would be a collapse. So, we're about prevention. You have been doing work on Davis Bessey in Ohio, which I understand. Now that we've won San Onofre here in Southern California, shout out to all those activists. It now seems that because of similar issues involved, Davis Bessey is the next one in line to fall. Would you bring us up to date on the history there and what you're facing now? Well, the history at Davis Bessie is, is a long one. Uh, before Three Mile Island, there was a similar situation at Davis Bessie, 18 months before Three Mile Island, the exact same scenario. Meaning operator error or a valve got stuck? A valve, or valve got stuck. But the industry did not learn anything. And 18 months later, Three Mile Island. Was there any provable radiation release that happened at that accident before Three Mile Island? No, they were able to get the valve open, but it's the same scenario that led to Three Mile Island. And no correction was made? The industry didn't learn any lessons. Then in 85, the uh, core uh, was close to being uncovered. Uh, within 31 seconds, they had to manually run through the plant and turn valves. There were congressional hearings uh, at that time led by Marcy Kaptur. Going back to that accident, it was 31 seconds away from meltdown? Uh, 31 seconds from the core being uncovered, which then, without coolant, you're on your way. That was 85. Then in 2002, there was a hole in the reactor that got eaten into the reactor by boric acid because there was a leak in the penetration welds. And the boric acid came up and sat on top of the reactor for a very long time without getting inspected. I, we're talking years and years, and ate a hole right down to the stainless steel liner of the reactor. And only three-sixteenths of an inch of stainless steel liner 
which was now bulging through this hole. So they were one or two months away from a Chernobyl-type accident, and that was in 2002. And there would have gone Cincinnati and Ohio and further east into New York and wherever else the wind would have scattered it. Ontario as well. So we would have lost Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, on out. They've had a multitude of problems at Davis Bessie. They've had to change the reactor lid twice because the replacement lid that they put on in 2002 deteriorated within a few years. But each time they changed that lid, they had to cut a hole through the shield containment building. And this last time, in 2011, they cut a hole through it, and they found out that there's cracking throughout the shield building. Now, they went looking for a root cause, and they came back with a root cause analysis of it was a blizzard of 1978 with wind and sleet-driven rain and freeze-thaw that led to the cracking. It was only surface cracking. Don't worry. That's our root cause analysis. And the NRC bought it, hook, line, and sinker. You know, sometimes one has to wonder about how gullible they think we are, and unfortunately our official bodies and our news media can prove to be really gullible when it comes to these stories because, of course, that makes no sense, but it's what they've been able to get away from because there's been nobody watchdogging it except for activists trying to get the information out. So after this 2011 cracking was found, was it shut down or did, was it allowed to keep operating? The reactor was shut down until they came back with a root cause analysis. The regulator, the NRC, had issued a confirmatory action letter, which would not allow them to restart until they gave a root cause analysis. Well, they came back with the blizzard of 78, and this was a snow job of monumental proportion. <laughs> the, NRC, the NRC bought it, hook, line, and sinker, and uh, the solution, well, we got to put a sealant on it. So they whitewashed it to cover up the, the what they referred to as surface cracking. We demonstrated in legal briefs that it was structural cracking. Uh, we tried to get hearings on that and manipulated and legal leaves out of it. But they, at that point, they had already cut three holes into that reactor shield building. So those are three different patch jobs that took place. Yes. And now they have to go in and cut another hole in order to install these steam generators that are scheduled for 2014. You know, if somebody had car tires that still had the inflatable inner tube on them, you wouldn't want one with, okay, one patch, maybe you'd put up with it. Two patches, you get up to three or four. You know you don't have a reliable tire there. Why in the world would they think that they have reliability when they've got three and now coming on to a fourth patch job on a nuclear containment vessel? The reactor shield building does not meet uh, design criteria, design basis. So we know it's, it's, it's weak to begin with, but it's government work and close enough for government work. But what it boils down to is production over safety. And they don't want to be down a day longer than they absolutely have to be because they're losing money, and it's all about the money. But now they're, they have to cut into this shield building for a fourth time, and they want to replace the steam generators. They have to replace them. But we look out to, to San Onofre and see what happened up there, that these steam generators were designed, fabricated, installed under a NRC uh, procedure called 5059. It's an internal uh, utility process without the scrutinization and without the opportunity for a public hearing. Well, there are some license amendments attached to the, the installation of the davis Bessie. And so we are taking the opportunity to call for hearings to fully investigate the fabrication, design, installment of these new steam generators. Now, do you know if there have been the kind of design changes that we faced here at San Onofre that Southern California Edison was lying about by saying, oh, it's not a design change. It's the same. It's just slightly not the same. But that's the same as being the same. I mean, that's what basically what they were saying here. Are you in a situation like that where you know that there has been a design change for the steam generators? Precisely. 
Uh, we have secured a nuclear engineer, Arnie Gunderson, who was instrumental at, at San Onofre. Absolutely. Of- the biggest gift our movement has ever been given, I think, is Arnie Gunderson. Well, he's a, he's a wonderful nuclear engineer, and he just gives you value-neutral nuclear engineering. I don't need somebody to be pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear, which he's not. I just need an accurate assessment. Which, of course, is one of the hardest things to get when you're dealing with the nuclear industry. Yes. So we have an accurate assessment from uh, uh, Arnie Gunderson, and he's identified nine areas of concern. Essentially, they're putting, they're doing an experiment here again. And then a tenth area is that the shield building is already compromised. So the the notion, the the rule that they use is a 50-59 where they say it's form, fit, function. Nothing new here. We don't need the scrutinization. Well, they're making major modifications throughout the plant. So it requires a license amendment, and it requires the opportunity for public hearings. And so on that, we are intervening. And we are going down to a deadline Friday night to respond. And, of course, we're getting outlawed and outspent, and they want to dismiss it any way they can. But we feel we have a good case to be made, and that if we don't get a favorable ruling from the internal Atomic Safety Licensing Board, which, after all, is only administrative law judges for the regulator themselves, but you have to exhaust that until you can actually go to a federal court. So we are marching along, exhausting our administrative procedures, and hopefully we'll get a favorable ruling from them and get an airing. If not, then we've got to go to a federal court to do it. But we've documented that this is not the same. This is not like for like. This is not fit form function. This is major money event that took place here where the NRC had, quote-unquote, a public meeting with people up on the podium, and we had people from our side there. But at that point, we'd already been given the terminology adjudicated evidentiary hearing, which is what you're talking about. And every person on our side who is up the same term over and over, and that's when we started launching it. And I think that was around the time that Friends of the Earth got involved here and started helping us so much on the national level. What, if anything, has been done by your groups to be in contact, first of all, with the San Onofre activists to learn what it is that we did, and second of all, with Friends of the Earth, which came in and had so much impact on the movement that already existed here in Southern California? When the notice came out for a opportunity for public hearing, it's always a short notice and you've got to scramble to respond. So we've, we how the valley goes back and forth a trial by pile. Um, we've heard from several folks in California. Excuse who are me, very, you, you, you just used the term trial by pile? Yes. You exchange documents back and forth. Uh, the utility tries to dismiss your case every which way they can. You have to defend it at multiple levels, multiple times, just to be able to get it to the light of day. So uh, we're at that phase, and uh, we're, we're getting word from folks in California that they're very interested in, in the Davis-Vesey, and we are reaching uh, out to Friends of the Earth as we speak with hopes that they can assist us. We're very grassroots, and we all need to work together as, as a nation of, of responsible environmental stewards and rid this planet of the blight of nuclear power. So we're, we're proceeding, and... It's going to be an interesting volley. Let me bring another aspect into this. How has the media been responding to this story? Have you found that you're getting any kind of decent coverage to put the issues in front of the populace? When we launched our, initiated our request for a hearing, we didn't get much media. The Toledo Blade and some local papers in Ohio. It's when the situation out of San Onofre began to unfold that they recognize, hey, this really is a major story here. There's really some traction to be had. So the next articles were much better. They linked in the San Onofre situation. Nothing succeeds like success in the in the movement or anywhere else. Um, and we're so still the, dancing the happy dance now, even though the, there, the NRC is trying to set aside the ASLB ruling. But we're shut down here, and I know that the activists are chomping on the bit to be able to provide the strategies and tactics 
at least explain them to other people in the movement so that you can start employing them in your local community. Well, you're not just dancing in the streets out there. Coast to coast, we're dancing in the streets. Um, <laughs> it's a major victory. So it sounds like you're getting media coverage, you're, or at least it's building, which was the same thing that happened here. It was pretty cursory coverage and puff pieces until we had that radioactive leak on January 31st of 2012, and that was what started the ball rolling and eventually led to the downfall of San Onofre. Well, we are getting some media coverage, but there's so many moving parts, and it, it, sadly, uh, environmental journalism is not something that the newspapers are investing in. So, you know, on top of every other beat they've got to cover, now they've got to cover the, the Davis Bessie. In addition, I mean, we don't have troops of, of people to get on the, the line and phone up the media and bring them all up to speed. We're scrambling just to make deadline and just to review the documents. We need the cavalry. <laughs> so, so send the troops. That leads me to a standard question that I ask here on Nuclear Hot Seat, but it's extremely heartfelt, and it does get response, which is if we in the movement who are listening to this work, or even if somebody's not in the movement but they're moved to help, can do something to assist you, what can we do and where can we go? Well, certainly we need financial assistance just to be able to have to, to staff and to chase these issues and review documents. We've got a, a crackerjack uh, attorney in Terry Lodge, based in Toledo, who's. Been, I've met Terry, uh, and he's fabulous. I've heard him speak at the uh, Coalition Against Nukes rally, which took place in D.C. last September. Yes, and he's he's well seasoned. Uh, you know, 35 plus years battling uh, nuclear power. I think he's been battling the Davis Bessie since 1977. So we have victories here and there, but we need staffers. We need resources to be able to secure the work that needs to be done. In addition, we've got to pay a nuclear engineer to give us a, a good, crisp, value-neutral analysis. And that's all we're looking for is, is a fair hearing on the issues. And we've, we've got to get the media going, um, and we've got to get people going on that. There's a, a few groups that are involved. I'm with Don't Waste Michigan. The Beyond Nuclear Group is working uh, with us as well. It's the old Margaret Mead, you know. It's it's just a handful of people who do change, bring about social change just through devotion and diligence. Financial resources we certainly could would be helpful. Also need legal legal assistance. Terry is working eighty, a hundred hours a week just trying to get on top of this stuff. If we had a team of attorneys, I mean, for instance, our deadline's Friday evening. We're going up against probably two dozen attorneys, half of them. Two dozen very highly paid attorneys who are on staff for the local, which is the energy company involved? Well, it's First Energy, and then it's also the NRC attorneys. You would think the NRC works for the public. They don't. Oh, no, they, they get 90% of their funding from the nuclear industry. They're not going to bite the hand that feeds it. Well, you would think they'd be working in the public interest, but they're not. Everything the utility says, the NRC parrots. They're a captured regulator. They just run interference for the utility. So let's get to some practicalities here. What's the website, and if people wish to donate, where can they go? Beyond Nuclear has been posting uh, much of our stuff, and they can act as our fiduciary to funnel resources to this particular project, just earmark a check towards the Davis-Bessie intervention. And uh, send that to Beyond Nuclear? Yes. Can that be done through PayPal market. as well if people choose to do that? I believe they do have a PayPal option. Great. And for attorneys and journalists to get on board, who should they contact and where should they go? Well, attorneys could contact uh, Terry Lodge. We've got some postings at Beyond Nuclear, beyondnuclear.org. And through that, they could reach Terry Lodge. There will be links there. If they look up Davis Bessie search, there will be links there. Do you have a website for any of the groups that you are representing? I do, but we're so short-staffed, they're not up and running. I mean, we, we need peoples. You're looking for a web person as well to come in and help you with that. 
and that does not have to be somebody who is local to you in Michigan. It's the web. It can be done anywhere. What do you see as a reasonable timeline from your perspective should all the pieces line up for getting Davis-Bessie shut down permanently? They have to replace the steam generators that are in there because they're just crapped out. They need these new ones to be installed. And what we're trying to demonstrate is we're trying to bring about scrutinization. And we believe that once we scrutinize the project that there's going to be major problems with it. We're hopeful of bringing Davis-Bessie offline in 2014. That would be after about 37 years of threatening the Great Lakes Basin. The NRC themselves, uh, Harold Denton, referred to the Davis-Bessie 1985 and 2002 scenarios as the second and third worst accidents in the U.S. It's a bad one, <laughs> and it needs to, to shut down before it, it melts down. That was Michael Keegan fighting nuclear in the Great Lakes region. I'll have a link to the various groups he mentioned up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog under episode 106. Protests against uranium mining at the Grand Canyon has been heating up, supported by a coalition of Mama Bears Against Nukes, Idle No More, Unoccupy Albuquerque, Occupy Albuquerque, and 13 Native American tribes fighting to protect their sacred lands and the health of their people, and all people, from the downwind contamination guaranteed by uranium mining. I caught up with two of the leaders of these demonstrations at the Grand Canyon, which began on June 1st and will continue until July 15. Dr. Catherine Wind Euler of Mama Bears and Havasupai Waters were traveling from the Grand Canyon to Albuquerque for demonstrations to be held on June 25th. We talked on Monday, June 24th, and they were in the car actually driving when we did so. There are some cell phone issues in the recording, so just pretend the dropouts are the same as what you deal with on your phone every day, and we'll all be fine. Tell us, yes. first of all, where you are and what has been going on down around the Grand Canyon. Well, we're traveling right now from Red Butte near the Grand Canyon, uh, where Energy Fuels, uh, the Toronto-based company, is digging a uranium mine. And we're on our way over to Mount Taylor, where the same company wants to dig a uranium mine at another sacred site. Over in New Mexico, and there's going to be a big demonstration in Santa Fe Tuesday, tomorrow at 2 o'clock at the new, uh, headquarters of the New Mexico Mining Association. And for everybody, we want everybody to protest the uranium mining at both Mount Taylor uh, and at the Grand Canyon. Uranium mining has been killing people for too long, and we need to put a stop to it. Your group, Mama Bears Collective, has been, it, it, it's what, Mama Bears Against Nukes? Yeah, the Facebook page is we're, uh, Mama Bears Against Nukes, and it's uh, the Mama Bears Brigade. We, the group started in 1981 with a blockade at the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear power plant. Tell me about the history of mining in your area. Brief so that we can get a sense of how far back the issue goes and what it is you're up against. The industry started having explorations during the early 80s. There was no consultation with the tribe since that time, and the professor came from Tenutsin Institute in New Mexico and clarified that energy fuels from nuclear is buying leased private lands from the surrounding area in Tucson. Some of that land was sold back back in the 30s or the 50s at, at 50 cents an acre because they found high-grade uranium ores. ESN got around getting a permit. Uh, establishing establishing a uh, shaft there prior to the council not being consulted. That was the first round. We, we put a stop to that for a 15-year moratorium. And the second round was that we put uh, another injunction on them on the grounds of religious violations for, for the tribe and the land and the cultural project as a cultural protection place for the Hopi uh, Katinas and the Supai Katinas also. And that was the second round, which we put another 20-year moratorium. We've gone ahead and did another form asking for another 20-year to 30-year moratorium stay for operations. Now the existing mines up in North Nab and south of Nab, Kaibab, those mines weren't grandfathered with, with, with the one that was existing now, ready to be opened then a few, uh, last year. Around April this year, 
I submitted a statement to the uh, UN Repertoire uh, stating that the existing mines weren't grandfathered with the one that's existing now that's ready to be uh, mined and extracted. And we asked for an intervention stating that we would uh, look at the cultural property uh, litigant uh, court system where we could find another recourse to make a stand again. The approach was made to the United Nations because the Native tribes are considered to be sovereign nations. Is that the reason you took that direction? Yeah, as a cultural property and a heritage place. Sounds like there is more than one Native nation that is pulling together on this. You mentioned the Lakota, the Navajo, and the Havasupai. Are there any other tribes that are involved? Yeah, there's other 13 tribes that are behind the uh, support for the uh, banning of the uh, ore that's going to be trucked through the Navajo land. That's being initiated right now. This was the point where, unfortunately, there was some interference on the call, and I'll pick it up with the parts that I was able to salvage. We're on our way over to Santa Fe to meet with the people who are protesting against the uranium mining uh, at Mount Taylor, which is also a sacred site, and the Havasupai sacred site, Red Butte, is being, uh, the uranium mine right now is going down and put down by Energy Fuels. It's a Canadian-based corporation. They're based in Toronto, and they just bought this uh, uranium mine over at Mount Taylor. I don't know why these international corporations are trying to dig out as much uranium last minute as they possibly can, because uh, I think that the price of uranium is headed down, and so they're not going to actually make any money from any of these mines but they're trying to extract as much as they think they can They can at the last minute, and they work these mines, like the Orphan Mine at the Grand Canyon. They worked that mine for 13 years. We went over there with a Geiger counter the other day, and we measured a hot spot outside the fence uh, where all the Grand Canyon tourists go. We measured a, a spot outside the fence uh, that was 11 microsieverts an hour with the Geiger counter, which, as you know, uh, as a survival, uh, survivor of Three Mile Island, you know that's a fairly high reading. Um, and that's terribly upsetting knowing that tourists are walking on and around and through an area that is that contaminated. The readings along the uh, along some of the watercourses, because, of course, that old uranium is coming down the watercourses and contaminating, you know, all along uh, that rim area where people go to, to see the Grand Canyon. They can't actually get into the old orphan uranium mine because there's a big fence there. So we took these, some of these readings outside the fence. And it's only a few hot spots, but it's it's high. It's elevated everywhere, even along the path where. But that 11 microsieverts reading was not on the on the rim trail, but it was still pretty high. It was 300 to 400 uh, counts per minute along the path, which, as you know, is quite high. Our normal background is about 50 counts per minute average, and it's not marked as a radioactive area there in the Grand Canyon National Park. And none of the uranium mines around Cameron. Uh, over there on the Navajo Reservation are marked very well at all that we've seen. They're just out there, and the uranium mines haven't been covered over. We ate lunch yesterday in Cameron with a family who lived near the uh, confluence for generations, and they can't use their water anymore because the water is so contaminated with the uranium from the mines over in Cameron. And now they're going to try to destroy another sacred site, the confluence of the Little Colorado and the Colorado. They're trying to big, build a big resort there. So there's a, there's a lot of issues, and, and people are really coming together in Santa Fe, and we didn't want to miss that march. That the people who have been protesting the energy fuels plans for a uranium mine at uh, Mount Taylor, which is a sacred mountain over there near Grants, New Mexico, which is the big uranium belt. You know, the people over there near Grants have suffered enough from uh, this low-level, long-term chronic uh, contamination with low-level radiation in their uh, soils and waters, and so mm-hmm. we all need to come together, everybody, you know, you know, uh, as as many of your listeners know, that we're all downwinders, and we just can't let this mine happen up at the Grand Canyon, you know, we can't let any more contamination come out, the uranium mine at Red Butte, they started digging the shaft again about two months ago, it's 125 feet deep, they're planning on going 1,600 feet deep, the aquifer for the entire region is at 1,700 feet, there are fault lines uh, in the region, and it's inevitable that the, after they put all the waste ore back into the shaft, which is their plan, the, the aquifer will get contaminated by this by this uranium mine. This high high grade, it's very high grade uranium ore. Well, there certainly is enough that if they need uranium or they need anything for a nuclear power plant, they can get it from some of the garbage that they've already created. They don't know how to take out their garbage. They need to stop playing around with stuff they can't deal with. 
That was Dr. Catherine Wind-Euler of the Mama Bears and Medicine Man Havasupai Waters. Here's the final thought. During my interview with Michael Keegan, I was reminded of how significant the San Onofre closure has been for activists, not only here in California, but around the country and the world. Even as the work about decommissioning is just beginning, we're still buoyed up by the success with ongoing celebrations. That's the thing about success. You need to celebrate it in as many ways as possible in order to lock it in and own it beyond the immediate moment. So I'm going to share with you a song that I recorded at the Summer Solstice Celebration Potluck I went to last Friday night. This will most definitely not be a professional singing experience, but it's a group of my friends in a community of about 30 women who spontaneously and wholeheartedly burst into this celebration of our win to thank me for my small part in it. We had already chosen the song as our theme well before the San Onofre announcement. So it was serendipitous that with only a few lyric tweaks, our chosen song became an easy, optimistic anthem for our movement. I'll be singing along live as well because, well, I can't stop myself. It feels too good. Just what makes that little old man think she'll close that nuclear plant? Anyone knows an ant can't close a nuclear plant, but she's got high hopes. She's got high hopes. She's got high apple pie in the sky. Hope so anytime you're getting low, instead of letting go, just remember that and Join me here. Oops, there goes another nuclear. Whoops, there goes another nuclear plant. So anytime you're feeling down, just go into the chorus. If only to sing, whoops, there goes another nuclear. Whoops, there goes another nuclear plant. And it was really a glorious celebration of victory. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 25th, 2013. Material for this week's podcast has been compiled from eannews.com, King 5 News in Seattle, and reporter Susanna Frame, the Australian CNN, Tri-City Herald, Oregon Public Broadcasting, E&E Daily, WBIR, InDepthMedia.com, IntelliHub.com, the Union of Concerned Scientists, PLEnglish.com, Asahi Shinbun, Kyoto News, BBC News, NHK, TEPCO, RawStory.com, Reuters, Christian Science Monitor, Fairwinds Energy Education and Maggie Gunderson, Fukushima Diary and Iori Mochizuki, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you numbnuts, World Nuclear News, TEPCO, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. With special acknowledgement to Captain D of the DAB Safety Team and Jackie Cabasso, Executive Director of Western States Legal Foundation. The archive for Nuclear Hot Seat is available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Check out the blog page. We've got all kinds of add-ons and enrichment, and it's a lot of fun. So if you like today's podcast, help me keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support, yes, yours, you, sitting there listening right now, to keep bringing you the news, interviews, holistic healing tips, numbnuts of the week, NRC, doc, report, and so much more. So right now, before you forget, go to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down, hit the donate button, then follow the prompts and give a little, get a little, Do your part to help me keep this podcast going. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but you are allowed fair use. Permission to reuse this material is granted as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. (laughs) And we have all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Do not go back to sleep. Oops, there goes another nuclear plant. There goes another
I'm so happy with this.